senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. I'm not normally a praying man, but if you're up there, please save me, Superman! Let's face it, this is not the worst thing you've caught me doing. Hi, and welcome to the Crisis on Infinite Midlives podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. This is episode 80, and we've got a really good show for you today, kids. (laughs) Uh, This one is pretty cool. We have a special guest. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, First of all, I want to do a little bit of record keeping. Sure. Show business. Uh, Boston Comic Con is coming up uh, next week. It is July 31st, August 1st, August 2nd. And Amanda and I will be attending and covering the convention all three days. Uh, we're going to be attending as many panels as we can possibly get into, even though that is often a shit show at Boston Comic-Con. Boston Comic-Con has grown tremendously. One area that still seems to be a an area of need is how they treat seating and uh, clearing of the rooms for the panels. It It seems to turn it into rather more of a cluster than it needs to be. <laughs> well, we don't know what they're going to do this year. Exactly. The, the so last, I'm trying to be hopeful. The last couple of years, they had a policy of clearing the room in between every panel, which we've argued repeatedly, if you've listened to this show, read our website, is, is not a great way to do things. Because the problem is there's only one one set of entrances in and out. Yeah. So you can't clear people out in one direction while allowing a line to form in the other. It becomes a roiling clusterfuck of people wandering around, and you know it's just a just a bunch of swinging dicks walking <laughs> around hitting each other for a ten dollar all you can eat testicle fest. So <laughs> what winds up happening is, yeah, people wander around, jump right back in the line, and there's nobody there to count people going in. So you'll get in the room, and it will be packed, and you'll wander around and have to just leave again. Yeah. Now we don't know that what they're going to do this year. There are a few panels where. Uh, they're going to be ticketed, um, so we are still trying to get tickets for those. Some of them are going to be available uh, tonight, so we got to wrap this show up in time to try to get those. Yeah. Long story short, we're going to get into as many panels as we can, get as much panel audio as we can, the same way we did for C2E2. So one difference between now and uh, how we did things in C2E2 is now we distribute our podcast on a cloud delivery network. Uh, which means you can download it wicked fast, but we have a limit as to how many megabytes per month we can upload. So we're not going to be able to do a show a day the way we've done at previous conventions. What we're planning on doing right now is a brief sort of overview, almost oral history, brief kind of show for next Sunday's show. Yes. And then we'll spend a few days cutting together audio from panels so that we can do a much bigger overview with panel audio (laughs) yeah a bigger sort of blowout wrap up uh probably on let's see tuesday the fourth or thursday the sixth and then we'll go back to our regular show schedule on sunday the ninth so we will have stuff for you from boston comic-con but the really good shit uh, it'll be sort of an interim show yes uh before the really big one sometime in the middle of next week Assuming we can get into any panels, <laughs> last year was a real crapshoot. It was. It was it, seriously, you walk in and it's like, all right, and I sit nowhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. There were a couple times we walked into a room and had to walk right back out again because yeah. there was just nothing there. So, but it's gotten big enough. You know, the, the convention keeps sending emails out that they are damn near sold out, at least for Saturday, which would be a first for Boston Comic Con and is really kind of exciting when you consider. 
and we've talked about it on the show over and over again, 2009, I think it was still in the basement of a hotel. Yeah. You know, more toward downtown crossing Chinatown with, yeah, a whole bunch of comic vendors and uh, indie comic producers and one or two named artists. And even that was exciting compared to what <laughs> it was back in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah. So it's really come a long way, and, and I really am excited to go to it. it. It certainly has kept me sane when we were unable to go to San Diego this year. Yeah, it's 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 nice to know that there is a a really nicely sized regional convention that is not going to be hard to get into or to to attend. Yeah, and even then, it's only the last couple of years where it has been something that you can be that excited about. If in two thousand seven. You had said, oh, you can't go to San Diego, but you can go to Boston Comic Con. Uh, my response would have been, fuck your mother, too. That's <laughs> Why the fuck would you say that to me? That's a terrible fucking thing to say. <laughs> you going to steal my dog, too, you piece of shit? It's really gotten good. It really has. So, so yeah, hopefully we'll have some good stuff from there. Because, yeah, both Marvel and DC are having panels. Uh, Josh Williamson is having a nail-biter panel. Yep. Um, there's a Scott Snyder is having a panel, I think. Scott Snyder's doing a Q&A. Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor are doing one. And I know I'm missing a, a ton of them just off the top of yeah, my head. Yeah, I mean, there's but... there's a lot going on. So hopefully we'll be able to get into some of this and bring you back the goodies. Exactly. So that you don't have to burn alive walking around the <laughs> Seaport World Trade Center where there's not a tree in sight yeah. and the sun blazes <laughs> down. What are they saying? It's going to be in the 90s next weekend? Yeah. Yeah. I will avail myself of the place nearby known as the Whiskey Priest, and then I will not care exactly how hot it is. <laughs> yes. But yes, that will be next week. Uh, this week's show, uh, yeah, we've got something uh, really, really cool. Um, uh, comic writer Christopher Sabella, uh, who, this is a rare case where I first heard of the guy, normally you hear of a writer and you follow him on Twitter. I followed him on Twitter before I had any idea he was really even involved in comics, somebody, and I can't remember who, retweeted some of his tweets from when he was doing some god-awful train ride halfway across the country yeah. at Christmas time, <laughs> and it was just a rolling update of misery <laughs> and bad decisions that was really fucking funny to read. So I started following him on Twitter. This is probably three or four years ago at this point. Yeah. And I had no idea he was involved in comics at the time, but then he started tweeting and I saw his name as a co-writer on like Captain Marvel a few times mm -hmm. and on Ghost by Dark Horse Comics and picked those up and they were solid books. So based on that, I started reading Dead Letters, which was a, a creator-owned book by him uh, that he started for Boom Studios about a year ago. Undead Noir. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's if you're or Ray afterlife noir, I guess. Yeah, would it's, be more for Raymond Chandler fans. You know, old school detective fiction. It was that kind of fiction with a supernatural bend. Yes, that was has really been solid. And I, I would have picked this up anyway, no matter who was writing it. But it was a nice bonus that he was Escape from New York by Boom Studios. You know, following the continuing adventures of Snake Plissken. Yes, <laughs> after the first movie, not. After Escape from L.A. <laughs> this was key. Yes. It's part of why we decided to, to oh. start following the book. But 
Recently, uh, he announced he's got a new book coming up uh, through Boom Studios. Uh, it's coming out, first issues in August. Uh, it's called Welcome Back. Uh, it's got art by a guy, uh, Jonathan Brandon Sawyer. And it, it seemed like kind of an interesting concept, just sort of reading about it initially, sort of warriors who are reincarnated over and over again, and individual ones, they're, they're doomed to fight each other to the death. Yes. And then be reborn and do it again and again. It's a never again. ended never ending war. Yeah. So it seemed like an interesting concept. And like I said, I I follow Christopher on Twitter. I figured, you know, what the hell? I, I reached out to him on Twitter and he sent us a review copy of the book. But <laughs> I would say cooler, but more insane on his part. Um yeah, <laughs> yeah he, you met us. Yeah, <laughs> he uh he agreed to to talk to us about the new book. Um, so yeah, yesterday we got on Skype with him and I was figuring he'd give us you know, a few minutes, half an hour, you know, to, to talk about just welcome back. But he spent just about an hour and a half on Skype with us talking, not just about welcome back, but about high crimes, which he got nominated for an Eisner for, and just came out in hardcover, uh, dead letters and escape from New York. Like we talked about and the conversation really kind of went in a lot of directions. We wound up talking about like politics and <laughs> what it was like to be in our 20s and whether there's any hope for America, <laughs> particularly when there are taxis that charge you $50 to puke. It was to clean up after you puke. I mean, you can puke for free. It's the after part. Yeah, well, I'm not going to clean it up. Therefore, it's a $50 <laughs> puke charge. I think that's pretty much. So yeah, it, it was a really great and interesting conversation. So uh yeah, I mean, uh, let's not uh, fuck around. Let's let's, let's go right into it. it. Uh, yep, this is uh, our conversation with Christopher Sabella. The first thing, and I've been wanting to ask somebody for a long time, and part of this is just because living in Boston, we're a really provincial fucking town. We're convinced we're the best city in the whole world. It's the reason Ben Affleck keeps making movies sure. about this place. There's no way to escape it. Um, yeah, what, yeah. What is it about Portland? It seems like half the comics provincial professionals in the free world since like the turn of the century have moved to Portland. What is it about that town? Is that just where everybody now is? So that's is where it over you go. Hellmouth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sh like I'm not sure who the the initial wave of people were, but um, I think it's the fact that when the majority of people were moving here, it was it was still pretty cheap. Um, so it's a good place to like, well, I'm working in comics, so I'm not making a buttload of money. Uh, so I can move to Portland and make a pretty good, like living, uh, and still be able to afford, you know, rent and groceries and occasionally going outside. And then, yeah, at some point the tipping point hit and then Portland became known as this place full of comics people. And now I think like people are just being drawn here by that. I mean, the, the nice benefit is that you're surrounded by folks who do the same thing you do, or at least like work in the same industry that you do. So it make it takes a lot of the uh, explanation stuff away. Like, you know, everybody knows what you're going through when you're talking about like, Oh, well I've got, you know, got my deadline pushed or, you know, I have FOC coming up or any of the like weird comics uh, lingo. So, so yeah, I think it started initially because of money and now it's, like now that it's established as this sort of comics community, I think that's the big draw for people moving out here now from comics. 
Okay, see, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have guessed it was just the, the coffee. We don't do coffee here in Boston. <laughs> no. Everything here is Dunkin' Donuts. You go to Dunkin' Donuts, you get your coffee, and go someplace else. Here it's all bars. The bars right. have open Wi-Fi, but every one of your characters would be named Sully, and halfway through the book it would be, fuck you, no fuck you, and yeah, <laughs> an entirely <laughs> different community. <laughs> all we right. do have a lot of shops, uh, but yeah, I'm not... I don't know. I'm not particular. Like, I'm not a coffee snob at all. Like, as long as it's brown and uh, tastes remotely like coffee, like, that's good enough for me. So, I'm sure I could get along in any city that has <laughs> something brown like coffee. We're all about the brown here in Boston, Christopher. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We met you briefly as, as fans at C2E2 this year. Now, and this is, this is yet mm-hmm. another provincial question, because um, that was our first time visiting Chicago. And I, I know that you're originally from Chicago, so this is another yeah. question that I was not able to get a reasonable answer out of anybody while we were there. What sure. the fuck is up with the $50 fee if you puke in a taxi? Um, <laughs> is, is Chicago just such a town of savage, reckless alcoholics? They felt the need to codify yeah, yeah. this behavior? I think there's a lot of that, yeah. No, I that was the first time I noticed it was when I went back for C2E2. I had never, growing up there, I'd never noticed a charge for vomiting in a taxi. So I don't know. That whole city has become wildly different from when I left. So I think basically all of Chicago is like, how can we extract as much money from a person as possible? (laughs) Um, But yeah, Chicago is a very big drinking town, which is another reason probably I left is because I'm not a huge drinker. So so, yeah, I'm sure there's a good amount of vomiting in cabs that happens. <laughs> okay. There, there was a reason where we felt reasonably at home there, but, it's yeah. It's just so it was... weird because we can vomit in cabs with impunity. <laughs> yeah. You say what you want about Boston, that we're insular, we got a chip on our shoulder, our idea of dressing up is when our jersey and ball cap have the same sports team, but God damn it, it's gratis to puke in a taxi here. You know, yeah, you got to sacrifice a few things. Exactly. So, Chicago gave that up. <laughs> Now, uh, a couple weeks after we got back, we actually, uh, we saw you on the Svenguli show. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Now, how yeah. did that come about? Well, I wrote, uh, I wrote, uh, a, this reboot of the character named Ghost for Dark Horse Comics. Initially, I co-wrote it with Kelly Sutaconic, and then I took it over. Um, so my first solo arc, because the book takes place in Chicago, I wanted to make the villain sort of a, Svenguli analog and Svenguli is this uh one of those old horror hosts who basically shows an old movie does interstitials like talking about the movie he's kind of like the proto MST 3K except he doesn't talk over the movie but I grew up watching Svenguli like I remember as a little kid like every Saturday I would sit down and watch whatever Svenguli showed me so so yeah then I was like well I want to put like a thinly veiled analog of him in the book and uh and then my editor it turns out was sending copies of the issues to him (laughs) um so he just like out of the blue one day on twitter he like uh sent me a a tweet saying like are you the one who's sending me these comic books i was like no but i i wrote them and then he started following me and then uh, he actually like talked about Ghost on his show, like held up a copy of one of the issues, so that was pretty neat. And then, and then when I was coming to C2E2, I saw him tweet that he was going to be there, and literally all I tweeted at him was like, "I'm going to be there too. Come find me." Uh, like I did not tell him where my table was or anything. Like 
So I was like, oh, well, that was stupid. But then <laughs> I think it was the, se- the second day, like the Saturday, all of a sudden, like I see Svengoolie like rounding the corner and he comes right up to me. So yeah, that was a definitely uh, like one of my peak moments in comics was that I, I turned uh, I turned a gig into a way to meet uh, one of my childhood heroes. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so let's talk about some of the stuff that uh, that you've got because you got a ton of stuff in in the pipeline right now. And one of them that just came out, your high crime series, uh, a hardcover just became available. I think it became available in comic stores a couple of weeks ago, and it was just this week yeah. it became available in bookstores. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now we just got it this week, and yeah, I want to mention. That book is fucking beautiful, man. I mean, it's yeah. hardcover, good paper, 12 whole issues of comics with some back matter for a flat 20 bucks, which amazed yeah, me. Yeah. Particularly since, you know, Dark Horse Comics, they've been getting, getting hyped for years of putting out the, the quickie paperbacks that are, oh, four, six issues for 10 bucks. You know, this is just a sure. ton of content for double the content for just double the price with you know, the extra quality in the book. Now, I know... You got a background as as a designer. Did you have a hand in that book's design, you know, putting it together? Or? No, uh, which I was grateful for because <laughs> I've, I've like I can do design stuff sort of one piece at a time. I've never I did the I did the trade design for my first book, Screamland, <clears throat> which is not it's not a horrible book, but like <laughs> the design isn't. Uh, nobody's gonna like. Wow, the design of this is really nice. Like nobody's ever said that, I'm sure. Uh, so yeah, it was it was nice to be able to sort of just like take my hands off the wheel and let someone else take over. And they did an amazing job. Like I think I'd done enough promotional pieces for the book over the last three years uh, that I think like in my head, I, I never, I haven't talked to the designer yet to get the full skinny, but he, I mean, I, I get the impression that like they looked at some of the stuff I did and were like, okay, well, this is a, a good general aesthetic. So I feel like hopefully I influenced the design a little bit, but mostly I just like stood back and, and let a professional go to work. Okay. Cause it, the only downside to it was I had a hard time actually getting it. I get almost, I'm one of those old school guys. I pride myself on, I get 99% of everything from my local comic store. I want to support them, and I assumed, oh, he'll just get the book because, yeah, he carries your other stuff. You know, I get your other books from there. But I think the reality was, since High High Crimes was originally distributed digitally through Monkey Brain, he didn't know if there was an audience for it, and he didn't order any, which is completely my fault. I I know that, you know, if you want to make sure to get a book, you have to order it ahead of time, and it's not a big deal to order them. You don't really need that diamond code. You can just email the goddamn comic store and tell them this is the book I want. You know, it's it's my own yeah. fault for not doing it. Now, is is this print run sold out at all? Can people still do a pre-order if they want to go to their comic store? Pre-order's too late, obviously, but if they want to order it through their comic yeah. store, can they can they still get it? Yeah, I believe the print run is still in print. Like I haven't uh I, I have to get off my ass and actually talk to my editor and find out numbers and stuff, but, um. Numbers are hard. There should be. Yeah, and they're scary. <laughs> and I kind of like to ignore them as much as possible, so. But yeah, it's still, you can still order it from your comic shop. Just tell them you want the High Crimes hardcover, uh, bookstores. Uh, if you can find a, a bookstore, uh, they, 
they might have one on the shelves or you can you know order it digitally from Amazon or uh, or any like online comic book shop like Midtown Comics or anything. Okay. Now we're called Crisis on Infinite Midlives, which means we're old fucking farts. Now uh, assume that most of our audience is is middle-aged, they're stuck in their habits, they do what we normally do, which is get most of our comics in print and they're not aware mm. of high crimes at all. I know it's a series that over that's over, but here's a chance to maybe pitch a few old farts what's your elevator pitch about what the book is about in order to get them to go in there and order the thing uh it's a crime thriller set on mount everest uh and it's about basically when anybody dies on mount everest above a certain height they leave the bodies there and this applies to pretty much all like eight thousand meter and above peaks around the world uh once you die at a certain height like it just becomes it's not easy to move a body so they leave you there and especially on Everest, like bodies become like part of the scenery. Uh, and our two main characters are high altitude grave robbers. And when they find a body, they strip it of personal effects. They cut off the right hand. Uh, they fingerprint it once they get back to Kathmandu and then they contact the families and sort of emotionally blackmail them saying like, Oh, well, we found, you know, your husband's body. Uh, if you give us 20 grand, we'll go get the body, bring it down and ship it back to you. You know, and if you really loved him, that's a small price to pay. And one of, one of their main characters, he finds uh, a body right below the peak of Everest. And when they run the prints, it turns out he's a, a black ops agent who went missing 20 years ago. And there's a roll of microfilm in the back of his severed hand full of all these explosive state secrets and stuff. So then it becomes a race between uh well, our main character is Zan, between her uh and this group of uh basically men in black are both racing to get to the summit of Everest and get to this body first. So yeah, it's an action book, kind of suspense book, and you know, it's very character driven and kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna say it it is one of the I don't wanna give anything about the ending away, but it is one of the the best, most realistic endings. Certainly, I don't know anything about Mount Everest or anything, but the, the concept of somebody going on this kind of journey saying, if I can just get to this, it'll be all right. And the way yeah. people are, sometimes that's the case, sometimes it's not. So, so it was a hell of an ending yeah. of the book. Thank you. I know you've probably answered this a million times. I don't personally know the answer. Where did you find this Ibrahim Mustafa guy? Because this is really some crisp and realistic looking art. And one thing that struck me, it would be really easy in a book like this to just constantly show, oh, giant steep slopes and there's the summit off in the distance. But it's just, right. he, he displays constantly shifting terrain of all different types. And the thing is, it just, it never ends and you almost never see the end in sight. And it really became almost oppressive after a while. And just the yeah, style yeah. of art and how he did the settings made the goal really abstract with just this never-ending treacherous terrain. Now, wh where did you find this gentleman? Because it's really good shit. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, like, this story has now become, like, mythical in my head. Cause, uh, <laughs> uh, so it was, like, 4th of July, 2012, and I remember I was, like, I had just, like, watched the fireworks, and then I had gone to a coffee shop uh, to work that night. Uh, and the next day was my birthday, 
So just like out of the blue, I remember getting this idea of like I wanted to go get like pancakes in the morning. So I texted my buddy Joe Keating, uh, who's a comics writer who lives in town here. And I was like, hey, and I didn't tell him it was my birthday. I was just like, hey, do you want to go get pancakes uh, at this? We have this place in Portland called Slappy Cakes, which is it's sort of like Benny Benny Hanna, but with pancakes. Awesome. Um, Amanda, we're moving. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yeah, there's just a grill built into your table and you just like they bring you bottles of batter and like your toppings and you just make your own pancakes. So Joe was like, yeah, sounds great. So we went and did that. And then I was driving Joe back to back to his studio and we were and we were talking about comic stuff. And I was like, yeah, I've got this monkey brain book like they accepted it. Now I just I'm trying to find an artist. And Joe was like, oh, there's this guy in my studio, Ibrahim. Uh, and he's kind of been looking for a new project. And luckily, Joe had this stupid rule in place that he never, that he wasn't going to work with anybody he shared a studio with, like, because he didn't want to make things weird or anything. <laughs> and, like, thank, thank fucking God he had that rule in place. Like, because he's like, yeah, I, you know, we share a studio, so I can't work with him, but like, uh, I think it might be up his alley. So we, Basically, we drove to his studio, and I went up there, and I met Ibrahim and basically pitched him while he was like drawing at his drafting table. And then he hit me back, like, and then yeah, I think I, like as soon as I got home, I emailed him because I already had the pitch and the beat sheet, like I had everything outlined and ready to go. And yeah, he hit me back that night and was like, "Yeah, this is all great. I want to do this." So yeah, like if I had done one thing differently uh, that Fourth of July, like if I had not sent that text to Joe. Like, I never would have met Ibrahim. Uh, this book never would have happened. Or if it did, it would have been a lot crappier. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just one of those weird little miracles that I am forever grateful for. I'm just picturing your eventual Eisner speech. I, I owe it all the pancakes. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> pancakes, uh, you know, are very important. <laughs> That's better. Every speech I give, it's like, thank you, Dr. Jack Daniels. I think I live a very different life than you do. Just one last thing on uh, on high crimes. I, I I know from reading various things about it that you're an Everest enthusiast. Now, I'm personally kind of a guy where, yeah, if I get a, a bug in my head about something, yeah, I'll, I'll research as much as I can and find as much shit as I can about it, and that'll sort of quiet my own personal obsessions. The chatter. It, yeah. Do, do yeah. you feel like your Everest itch has been scratched, or will you find yourself training someday to... I'm all yeah. for exploration, but I'm a space kind of guy. They give you a nice bucket seat and a seat belt, and you sit sure. quietly, and they blast you into space. Anything requiring the effort, yeah. that's a little beyond me. But uh, was this yeah. enough for you? Or uh, yeah, totally. Uh, no, like I, I like at most, like if somehow we like sell this as a movie and make a buttload of money, like I would like to go to base camp, like just to see it in the flesh and just to look up and see Everest. But but even that is like just getting to base camp. It's like ugh, like no, I'm definitely an armchair enthusiast. Uh, like I'm not. It's, climbing Everest sounds fucking horrible. Like <laughs> everything I've read about. Like there's no and the payoff is that you know you stand on a crowded little, you know, uh, scratch of land for like 20 minutes at most, and then you have to turn around and do it all in reverse. Like. After you paid sixty thousand dollars to stand, you know, on this little patch of earth, that there are like twenty other people probably 
standing around you also trying to drink it in. It just sounds terrible. Um, I, I was going to say, you but, didn't exactly glamorize it in the book. You're making it sound even more of a pain in the ass. I was shocked at how crowded it was. Reading through the book, I'm like, for something that is that is this costly and this dangerous, that there would be that many folks trying to make this trek just seemed beyond what I would expect. Yeah, it's crazy. And it just gets worse year after year. Like there was like, I think it was two years ago, somebody, a photographer posted a photo of, uh, I mean, it was like a long line of ants, like going up the side of Everest, like at least like a hundred climbers, like back to back, you know, like, like slices of bread and a loaf, like just <laughs> moving up and it's just going to get worse and worse. Like, because because you don't have to be a master mountain climber. You don't have to have technical skills anymore. Like now you can hire an expedition to, you know, sort of do all the worst stuff for you. And so all you have to do basically is like, is get up every morning and keep moving. Like Everest is just about endurance. It's like, can you put up with this shit for, you know, two to three weeks? I mean, and that's another thing that the book, you know, I mean, we had to compress it for space, of course, but like, you know, an average climb on Everest, like it's a three to four week affair, you know, climbers are going up and then they'll hang out for like a day or two at like camp two. And then they have to come back down. Um, there's all this acclimating that goes on. So like the Kumbu icefall, which is like the worst part of the climb on the Southeast, like where most people die, mm. like climbers have to mm. climb through that like four or five times before they start heading for the summit like it's yeah everything about it is like why would you do this to yourself i feel like i understand it a little bit more like having just sort of focused so intensely on it for the last three years but it's still just like ugh. like i can't imagine anything worse than like well i have to climb twenty nine thousand feet into the sky um <laughs> and then i have to somehow get myself back down uh, after I've done that and not, you know, not succumb to the two dozen different things that could kill me along the way. I don't even like to walk up an escalator, so <laughs> I yeah. can't even yeah, imagine. I, I was going to say, huh, be freezing cold, out of breath, and step over a dead guy. All I need is a pack of cigarettes. I live in Boston. I got all that shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that's the thing about Everest is, like, technically it's not a difficult climb uh, from what all real mountain climbers say like the uh, my favorite quote about it is that you know if it were at sea level you know like kids could run up to the summit um but because it's so high up like it's yeah you're like there's edema you can get you can get mountain sickness like uh it's just like you know you can you can uh get sunburn on your corneas or on the back of your mouth like if you're just like yeah, like the sun is so intense. There's so much solar radiation that, like, when you climb, you have to be conscious to keep your mouth closed because if the sun hits the snow and beams into your mouth, you'll sunburn the roof of your mouth. Like, all these things that nobody has ever thought, like, I should be aware of that. Like, it's all out there just waiting to, to hurt stupid people. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but now I, I feel like definitely my... I used to have an annual obsession with Everest where I would just like dive into reading and watching stuff once a year. And now I have not had that urge at all this year. And I didn't really have it last year either. So I kind of feel like, okay, I've dealt with this obsession. I can put it in a box labeled high crimes. And then <laughs> now I can 
I can devote all that obsession to something new. (laughs) Revisit the horror in my own book. That's probably a good way to go. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I want to move on to uh, dead letters. And my first question is, I haven't seen an issue in two or three months. Is that still an ongoing concern? I think there's a solicit for August. Is that still good for issue 10? So, yeah, 10, 11, and 12 aren't coming out as single issues anymore. We got super behind, and uh, the sales didn't really justify it. So, basically, we're doing, like, 9 came out, but they're going to do a trade that's basically 9 through 12. So, it'll be the whole last arc in one trade. Okay. But, yeah, it was just a, yeah, like, once you get behind a certain spot, behind the 8-ball, it just financially doesn't make sense to put them out as single issues anymore. Okay. Um, and fortunately, like Boom was fully committed to the book to us wrapping it the way that we wanted to wrap it. So they were like, "Yeah, we can't do single issues anymore, but we will still do the trade." Like, and they'll release them digitally as well, I believe. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of a bummer, but like, as long as my book comes out, like, I don't care what you know. If it's a trade, I, I feel like a, a, a lot of people mostly buy trades. So, like, it still works to our favor. Like, it's not the ideal situation, but I've seen the pages that Chris is turning in, uh, and it looks, like, this third arc looks even better than the first two. So, it's like, if we need some extra time, if this is, like, the weird circuitous route we have to go through to make it happen, then so be it. Like, it's not the worst thing that's happened to me in comics by a long shot. So, Well, I'm, I'm glad you're getting into it. You're, glad, you're getting to end it on your own terms, but it, it's a bummer that it's ending because one of the things I liked about the concept was it really could be the Raymond Chandler story that never ends. You know, you, yeah, you can yeah. kill an adversary and they come back and, you know, you can... <laughs> the, the ultimate adversaries are God and Satan. You can string that out for forever. And, and as a Chandler fan, you know, yeah, I was really digging... Oh, shit, I thought... That's right, they shot him in the head, but it doesn't matter. We're going to see them again, so it's... Yeah. yeah, I'm bummed. I've been getting it since the first issue, so I'm I'm bummed it's coming to an end. I'm glad you're getting it ended on terms that you like, but no, I mean, and this is you know we're doing the ending that I always had in mind when we started the book. Like we definitely could have taken a much more circuitous route to get here, but you know, Chris Visions and I are two dudes that when that book started coming out, uh, and I think largely still even now, like a, a lot of people had no idea who we were. So like for Boom to commit to 12 issues from relative strangers like you know i'm i'm very happy about how that book did like uh you know and it's like it's such a good looking book that like giving chris more time to work on it without having to like rush to meet a monthly deadline will only make it look better so i feel like in the end like this is all going to work out ideally um you know it's not ideal right now but you know once those three volumes are out you can sort of read them all in one fell swoop like it'll all pay off okay because yeah one of the things i liked about chris's art nothing about the book was a fast read i always felt like i had to stop and flip back and say all right did i did i miss something there were a ton of visual cues in the art that you needed to see to be able to understand how the ongoing mystery was unfolding and i was constantly oh yeah shit i didn't see sam pick that thing up that he's going to take a read off of to continue on with the investigation there's a density to to vision's art that i really like with this kind of story because it's what you want it feels like you have to really study it to make sure you're getting all the information yeah yeah 
I've really enjoyed uh, his work on it. And yeah, if this means he gets a little extra time to add some extra density, I'm bummed it's ending. But all right, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Yeah, and the third arc, we're doing some weird stuff that I haven't really seen done in books a lot, in comics a lot. Because um, the third arc is kind of dealing with purgatory starting to fall apart. And the way, the sort of strategy that we all worked out to how that translates visually, I think is really, really interesting and not, not really something that I've particularly seen in comics much, if at all. So... Like, it'll take a while to read Volume 3, but I think it's really going to be worth it. Like, if everything that we're doing pays off the way we think it will, like, yeah, there should be, uh, hopefully people will be talking about it, so. Okay. Now, I know the, the first trade is out. Is is there a second one yet? Yeah, we just approved, uh, like, the trade dress for the second one, so I think that's, I'm not sure when that's coming out. I think it's closer to the end of the year. So, yeah, maybe more like October or November. Okay. And, you know, before I was, you know, talking about image comics trades, yeah, that, that first trade, the existential op, that, that's also 10 bucks, right? So it's an easy pickup yeah. for somebody to get into. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. So as a John Carpenter 80s fan, I got to talk a little bit about uh, Escape from New York. Now, when, sure. when I met you at, at C2E2, that first arc, you know, you described to us as Snake Plissken versus Florida Man, which was, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun. This latest arc that we're on right now really seems a lot darker and, and even more cynical, if that's even possible for Snake Plissken. It's like more of a, a science fiction bend with you know weird technology yeah. and fucked up, literally fucked up, they don't work, mech suits and high-tech weapons. And yeah, yeah. as of the last issue, we're dealing with the Tunguska Blask of 1909 yeah yeah now is there a reason you're you're moving more in that kind of direction is there a theme that you're going for here or yeah uh the first 12 issue like i i kind of i kind of worked out i don't know i i hadn't really figured out what the third arc was going to be until we got notes from carpenter after he read the first issue and he had one suggestion for like what he would like to see in future issues. And my editor told it to me and I was like, well, of course, like if John Carpenter wants it, like I will do whatever it takes to make that happen for him. (laughs) Um, But when he suggested it, I was like, oh, well, like at first I was like, "Mm, about that. But then when I thought about it, I was like, oh, well, that's perfect. Like that helps, that helps tie the whole first 12 issues to sort of make it one long story arc. Because I never wanted to do, I didn't want to do like the adventures of Snake Plissken where it's like, where is Snake this week? Like <laughs> now Snake. I wanted everything to like have, you know, a, you know, I wanted everything to be a result of Snake's actions and consequences and stuff like that. So also like I didn't realize it at the time, but like I think a lot of my writing on that book kind of reflects like I know it all takes place in quote unquote the past of like 1998. Uh, but, but I don't know, like, uh, the thing I like, which I never expected, the thing I really like working about that on this book is that like, it's sort of a way for me to make commentary on America, how it is today. So I don't know. I think that second arc is darker just because like so much terrible shit 
has happened in the last year that like when I sat down to start writing that one, I was just like was really bummed about America and like just um, you know, the American dream and all that stuff. And you know, it feels like like Snake is the best mouthpiece to sort of deal with that because like that's really you know, the dude like gave up an eye and like sacrificed his youth to fighting in in the military in this like World War Three, and then he came back to, uh, and none of this is established in the film, but like my take is that, you know, it was like, it was like Vietnam. Like he came back and nobody was grateful. And so, and you know, like, shit, they all thought he, he was fought. dead. <laughs> uh, and he like fought and lost all this shit for America. And it's like, and he comes back and it's like, this is the America he was fighting for, like a place where crime is up 400%. And they, they fucking like turned New York city into a prison. Like, um, so he decides to like, you know, sort of go out and get his own. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the second arc is definitely a lot darker than the first one, but, uh, and the third one might be even darker. I'm not sure yet. It's, and then the fourth arc where I haven't started writing it yet, but I've outlined everything. But yeah, it's just kind of like, I don't know, my my feelings about, uh, you know, the sort of like, uh, like, I want to love this country, but there's so many things standing in my way. Like, uh, so yeah, and uh, luckily, like, I get to draw or I get to write, you know, fight scenes in between me, you know, uh, having an existential crisis about what's happening to America. So fight scenes make I, all existential, like- existential crises better, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like the movie was very much written as a reaction to stuff like, you know, the, I mean, cause that, that movie came out in 80, 81. And so I feel like it was written a lot in reaction to stuff like, you know, the, uh, Watergate and like everything that like, you know, back then, like the country seemed like it was falling into the toilet. Uh, so I feel like that movie was very much a reaction to like what's happened to the America that I grew up in. So inadvertently, like I, I feel like I've kind of been writing it from the same place that Carpenter was, which is like, you know, like I grew up in this America that I, you know, everybody taught me like, this is awesome. Like everything's great. And like now it's like the America that we are living in now is like, well, like I'm still cool living here, but like I, I'm starting to have my doubts uh, about a couple of things. Like so. They charge you fifty dollars to clean up your puke in the back of a cab. <laughs> that's that's un American. Yeah, that is. That's right. I will say that Snake's speech, I think in the latest issue, to Bulger off, where he's just talking about how the entire war was based on lies and he's tired of watching kids die for it. Tagged with that, that's the most I've said to anyone in years. That was a very affecting moment and yeah you realize okay and it's perfectly in character for what you did with snake where yeah he's he's sticking with this unit you know as they go forward and it's he's doing it because all right i'll I'll do it for these kids i've seen too many people die for this stupid shit but i don't believe in it anymore so there's really some affecting stuff in you know what at face value is oh it's a nice licensed comic where that Nice man from Big Trouble in Little China shot people with a modified Uzi. Where's the yeah, Duke yeah. of New York? Well, there's more going on here, man. Yeah, I, I didn't want it. Yeah, I didn't want it to be like a piece of fluff, basically. Like I wanted it to sort of, you know, stand for something. Like even if you know only a handful of people really get into it, like that's 
that's why I do, you know, I'm trying to, you know, also write it as close to what that first movie was like, which is like, you know, a lot of like weird shit and strange tension and then release of like dudes running around shooting shit. Uh, so hopefully like, you know, if you're just in it for, uh, you know, running and gunning, there's plenty of that for you. Uh, if you want something a little deeper from it, that that's in there for you too. So, so yeah. Uh, it's, it's the most like fun licensed comic I've written though. Like they're, they're totally open to whatever I want to do, which like when I, when I suggested like, oh yeah. And then we're going to nuke Florida. Like nobody was like, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. They were just like, okay, sounds good. Like, make it so, so I was like, shit. Like, <laughs> no, no sane person would really be against that idea. Christopher, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and your parents live there. True, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, uh, I'd warn my folks, but otherwise, uh, yeah, uh, you got the green light from us. All right. I did have one lighter, more technical, maybe inside baseball question about the book. Having Hauk in the Penance Iron Man suit, was that a likeness rights workaround? Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely. Because part Probably of me... The only like... Well, I was going to no, say, you. part of me thinks that nothing would... You can't make it scarier than Lee Van Cleef hunting you down. But there's another part of me that thinks there's nothing funnier than the idea of Lee Van Cleef in a fucking gimp suit. Porcupine so, gimp suit. So I go back and forth with that one, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, the only licensing rights we had were for Kurt Russell. So, so yeah, I couldn't do anything with Donald Pleasance. Couldn't do anything with Lee Van Cleef. So, but I still wanted to use him. Like, I, I felt like, like the story between Hawk and Snake wasn't done yet. So. So, and I've always, I've, the, the bear suit that he wears, like I've been, I've had that in my visual Rolodex for a long time now. Of, is is like, bear the technical term is, for is the bear? suit? Yeah, it's a, it's a bear, it's a bear hunting suit or okay. a bear baiting suit. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it's a real thing. Like in Russia, like, you know, they're, they, back in the day, like they would wear, you know, this suit basically with like nails driven in from the inside. So like if you get attacked by a bear, like there's nowhere he can grab onto you. It's all spiky. So now I know what so, yeah, it's very... I'm going down tonight. <laughs> right. Yeah, see, there are vintage photos of it. Like see you're ruining the image of the gimp suit for me with realism. <laughs> I'm gonna stick with the gimp suit idea. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, so that was like the way I could get away with it. And we do, we do something similar to that in the, in the third arc where we have a character come back, but we can't, we can't show them as they, as they actually look like. So we have to do some, some clever workarounds, but that's always like, I don't know. Like I like a challenge. Um, like if they had just said like, yeah, you can use everybody however you like. Like I feel like I wouldn't have been able to do some of the, the neat stuff that I'm doing now. So, you know, it's kind of a pain in the ass when you find out, but then it, it like, then you have to sit down and actually use your brain and be like, Hmm, okay. Like I know I can make this work. I just have to logically uh, puzzle it out. So yeah. Putting Lee Van Cleef in a bear hunting suit. Like <laughs> it's like, sounds about right. Yeah. That works. Um, all right. So you've got a 12 issue arc planned on this for right now. Like twelve issue total uh, run, rather. No, we're we're going to sixteen on that. Oh, okay. great! So, all right, very cool. And issue eight is out uh, next Wednesday, right? Twenty ninth. Yeah, yeah. That'll wrap up the Siberia arc, and we'll set up 
by the end of the issue eight, and you see where we're going for issue nine. So hopefully that uh, excites people. All right, very cool. So let's move on to to one that we're excited about. Welcome back. Now, this is going to be a four issue limited series, correct? Yeah, I mean that's how it's scheduled right now. Um, I would definitely like more issues. So, so yeah, right now we're definitely trying to get people to excited about it and pre-ordering it or you know putting it on their pull list because because yeah, it's it's a much bigger story than four issues. But right now, like the first four issues are definitely planned. So that's what we're working with right now. Okay, so it definitely makes a difference to get on board on this one early. So this one, you're writing it, yeah. art is by Jonathan Brandon Sawyer. It's another Boom Studios book. Now, we, mm-hmm. uh, Amanda and I have read the first issue, um, which you provided us a review copy. It is very, very solid, but what the hell, you're here. Why, why don't you give a rundown of, of what people can look, look for in this book? Uh, so basically, the, the conceit of Welcome Back is that the, everybody in the world is reincarnated. And it's a process that happens over and over. But there is a small segment of the population that are called sequels. And uh, they basically, most people are reincarnated. They never remember their past lives. Like, you know, you occasionally glimpse it in a dream or, you know, uh, a drunken or drug state now and then or a weird deja vu. But but otherwise, like, life is normal. For sequels, uh, at a certain point, usually between the ages of like 14 and 20, they, they wake up and they remember all their past lives and they remember that they are part of this war that's been going on since the dawn of human consciousness. And there's two sides fighting each other. Um, so each, there's a whole hierarchy and uh, we're really focused on the soldiers who are basically like assassins and each soldier has a target and vice versa, like their target is hunting them. So they basically have to track each other down in this new life and try to kill the other one first. And whoever ends up winning, then they kill themselves so they can chase their target into the next life. And the, the cycle starts all over again. So we're this welcome back starts with our main character. Her name's Molly Quinn. Uh, and she's kind of woken up late and... You know, she's kind of an aimless mid-20s-year-old, uh, not sure what she's doing with her life or, you know, what the point of all this is. And then she finds out basically like, oh, you're a thousands of years old uh, badass and it's your job to go out and, and kill this other person. And then so we're focusing on her and then we're focusing on our target, Tessa, who is hunting her down. So... That's, I guess, I have to work on a better elevator pitch for it, but that's basically the story. It feels like Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Highlander in a certain, <laughs> to a certain degree. I'll take <laughs> Yeah, I'll you, take- you can use that. That that kind of pitch has worked for Mark Miller. You can do something like that. All right, cool. I'm on it. Now, it seems the conceit of the the two soldiers that are, are destined to find each other and kill each other and no matter what nobody gets out alive from a combat tactics standpoint that seems a little counterintuitive are we going to find out more about why that's the case because it almost seems like that would be the kind of thing one might order people to do if you don't want them killing other people i don't want you to give anything away and i may be going way out on a limb here but 
Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something we'd like to explore more in depth. Like when I pitched the book, it was a lot darker than it was like, like it was like unceasingly bleak. Um, <laughs> like I came up and like, I still think a lot of it applies, but like not as strongly, but I came up with the idea of like, you know, well, like this, you know, this explains all the weird or like all the horrid shit that happens in our world on a daily basis. Like, like why did that person go nuts and like shoot 30 people, you know, and, or why did somebody like bomb this thing? And it's like, well, the ex like in my head, I was like, well, that's the explanation is that like, these are like sequels who are just like, my target is in there. I don't care who else I take out. Like my job is to take out my target. So if I have to take out 20 other people to get to them, but yeah, I mean like, and I, that still applies to the book, but like, I'm definitely kind of like pulled back from that a little bit. Cause it's just like, nobody wants to read about like nonstop death without, you know, some spark of like fun or life in it. So. And I say in, in a war like this, where you've got it set up so that the soldiers each have a target and the object is to hunt down the target, kill the target, kill yourself and start over again. How do you win this war? Or is that supposed to be the message? <laughs> that, well, that's, I mean, that's one of the mysteries is like nobody, you know, it's been going on for so long for thousands of years now that like nobody really remembers why they're fighting this war. Like, um, a lot of that, like I tried to draw some analogs to actual wars, which is, you know, any war that none of us have lived through, like it becomes a lot harder to explain, like, well, why did this war start and what were they fighting for? Like, you know, if you ask anybody, like, why did World War One start? Well, it's like, well, it's the arch, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And it's like, well, that doesn't explain shit to me. I don't really like, but that's as good an explanation as any, I guess. Like, so, and I feel like it's the same for soldiers in this war. It's like, well, why are we fighting this war? It's like, well, cause we've always fought it. Like, and there's, you know, like, this is our destiny. This is our fate. Like, who are you to, like, argue with? There's a reason that we all wake up and remember our old lives and, like, everything that we, we've done in the past. So, like, you know, uh, that reason must be that, like, something is driving us to continue this war. And we don't know how we're going to win. Like, but at some point, this war will end. So all we can do is just keep fighting until it does. And then, ideally, we'll all be free or will you know be elevated to some some new plane or something like but yeah i feel it's very much like like the soldiers in the book are like ground level soldiers in any war like they don't they're fighting because they're told to because you know they've been signed up for this uh and it's you know like they're there to follow orders they're not there to to fix a war like they're just there to like is my job this is what I have to do. So I tried to, not to make it too like, you know, I'm not trying to do like a sociopolitical analysis of war or anything, but I think a lot of the like confusion that anybody has over like, well, why is everybody fighting? Like, um, like definitely translates a lot in this book. Well, I mean, you can do a sociopolitical <laughs> comment on war as long as it has as much ass kicking action as this, this issue has. I mean, one of the things that interested me was it, it almost seems like Molly knows instinctively there's something different about her, like even before she's awakened. 
because in reading through the issue a couple times, it seems like she's putting herself in positions where she should really just get fucking destroyed. You know, more taunting stalkers and jumping in front of a bus to get away from them and getting shit faced and wandering off with strangers. And I mean, the first quote yeah. we hear out of her mouth is from Johnny Rotten. That makes a statement. I mean, <laughs> were, were you trying to, to indicate that awakened or not, Molly is a badass who understands, even though she doesn't really understand it, she knows she's not to be fucked with, even before she knows she's a sequel? Uh, yeah, I mean, my to me, it's more that, like, she just doesn't give a shit anymore. Like, she's... And I, I definitely drew on a lot of, like, of my own uh, past experiences. But, like, I don't know, this sort of thing of, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Like, so, so like, I'm just going to, like, do whatever with it. Like, you know, uh, like, I'll fucking, you know, I'll get shit-faced and, like, wander off with a dude I just met. Or I will, like, I will leap in front of a bus to make sure it stops so I can get home, you know, 20 minutes earlier. Because I don't want to deal with fucking standing out on the street for another 20 minutes. Like, I think it's it's more of, like, a, like an aimlessness, a sort of like, I think all that badassery is very unconscious. Like it's, it's just like, she's just like, no, I'm just like trying to get through this life and figure out where I fit into it. Um, and right now she, you know, she can't get work. She's got, you know, student loans like, uh, haunting her. Like she's, you know, um, sort of surrounded by all these people kind of moving on with their lives. And she's, one, she's kind of haunted by her past, uh, and like all this shit she grew up around. And two is like, she doesn't, she's haunted by her future because she doesn't know what it holds. Uh, and I feel like that's something that was like my easiest way into it because like for the longest time, I mean, honestly, until I, I started like really pursuing writing, uh, as a full time thing, I had no fucking idea what I was going to do with my life. Like I was like, well, uh, I don't know. Like something will figure itself out, maybe. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it was like I've had those those uh, periods where I've been like extremely self destructive and extremely like playing fast and loose with uh, any number of situations that like could have just like completely fucked me up or or ended my life. But you know, it was like at the time it was like, well, it's a thing to do. Um, it's better than you know sitting in my room and like being depressed. So yeah, I I feel like like and maybe some of that is subconscious that she does know who she is, but I feel like most of it is just like eh, screw it. Like if I get hit by a bus, like would that really be that bad? Like considering the life that I'm living right now. So yeah, I'm flashing back to that time I jumped on a moving uh, moving T train, <laughs> and yeah, okay, that that makes a lot of sense what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, like you're just at that weird in-between moment where it's just like well like maybe i you know maybe i'm the one like uh, you know you you hit that point where like suddenly everybody you grew up with and like went to school with like suddenly like especially now with like social networking like you start seeing like oh like so-and-so got this amazing job or like hey i just got married or i just had a kid and, and it's just like well what the fuck am i doing like and like you know so like but maybe I don't have that in store for me. Like maybe I am just resigned to be like one of these sort of people who makes no impact and who has, you know, no, leaves no legacy. And it's like, if that's the case, then like, 
fuck being like precious with myself. Like I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do whatever and like see what happens. Cause anything other than like what I'm going through day after day, the exact same routine, like it can only be an improvement, uh, at this point. I mean, so a lot of it is, you know, sort of stems from that sort of lingering depression sort of stuff that I think a lot of people go through and some people are haunted by forever. Um, and a lot of it is just like, I think the same thing that anyone has experienced at some point in their life of like, I don't know, like, I don't know what the future holds and it kind of terrifies the shit out of me. But Anybody fun. in their twenties who says they know what they're doing is so full of shit. They squeak when they walk and yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. There's a reason neither Amanda nor I are on social media. I don't give a fuck what those people are doing. And frankly, uh, let, let them think there's, I'm doing some legendary shit out there, no matter what I'm doing. Right. But this is kind of yeah. fascinating in a way, in terms of what you're describing. Cause yeah, I remember the terrible 22s. You, know, you come, get out of school, you think you know everything, but you don't. <laughs> and then you get frustrated because things aren't happening fast enough, but you don't know what those things are. But this is all juxtaposed against, um, a world in which we're all reincarnated and doomed to relive things whether we want to or not. <laughs> so that's that's an interesting juxtaposition that you have set up in this book, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's very, I don't know, like the reincarnation thing, like, I don't know, I get very, you know, with dead letters and now welcome back, like clearly I have a slight fixation on like what happens after we die. Because um, I... I don't know. I just find like all those theories fascinating because as far as I know, what happens when we die is like everything goes black and then you stop thinking about things uh, and then you just sort of wink out. But like there's so much, you know, so much time and energy has been invested in like, no, this is what happens. And like, you know, if you do these certain steps, then you will be end up in the good part of what happens after we die. And like, I don't know. Like, it feels sort of the same as, like, you know, when teachers in grade school told you, like, you know, um, if you work hard and you and you, you follow your dreams, like, you will achieve it. And it's like, nah, not really. Like, <laughs> like, there's so many things in the world standing in the way of you achieving whatever, you know, uh, weird dream you might have when you're when you're 12 years old. So, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound super cynical. Like, I, I do love the world and being alive but i think there's a lot about being alive uh that's kind of bullshit um dude if you want to be super cynical like, you're on the right fucking show <laughs> <laughs> good i mean yeah so you know it's very much uh it, there is a, a a big sort of incomprehensible aspect to everything because i feel like the world we live in is completely incomprehensible at times. Like certainly this week, like I've just been like, I don't like every time I, I open the news, it's just like, Oh Christ. Like it's like, is this just what the future is going to be? Is just like one uh, horrible thing after another? Like, is there ever going to be a moment where like things are not terrible in the world? Isn't it? So I don't know. I mean, I'm vaguely optimistic that there is hope, but you know, um, I've, I've kind of invested a large part of my life in cynicism, so it's hard to, uh, to dig myself out of that hole. Oh, there. <laughs> this man is playing Tetris. Sorry, yeah. He thought we wouldn't notice. <laughs> no, no. 
I keep hitting the space bar, and then it makes that sound. And then oh, that's what that is. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thought you were like ring, running your finger around a crystal glass that was just out of shot. <laughs> oh God. Wait. But yeah, I was gonna say uh, yeah the, and I I thought of this question at, at the end of uh of the high crimes hardcover that from the end of the stand. Do you think anybody ever learns anything? Yeah, I don't know. And there's times everybody feels like that. And yeah, with with the news over the last four or five months, you get some encouraging things like, oh, they took the Confederate flag down finally in South Carolina. But at the same time, yeah, what what caused that? And nobody talked about that. And now we've had another one. It's right. <laughs> if you're and not like, if you're not what? a little cynical in the modern world, you're not paying any fucking attention. Yeah, and it's like, okay, we pulled the flag down, but like, here comes the resurgence of the KKK. Like, it's the fucking year 2015, and we're dealing with the fucking KKK coming back. Like, it's like, can anything go right in this world? Like, can we just have one solid victory that does not turn into a shit show? Like, yeah, like, it's just like, uh, like, I know that life is not like a, a story or a movie, and like, there is no, like, perfect happy ending but it's like can we just catch a fucking break now and then like can we have something good happen you know like like the supreme court affirming gay marriage like that was that was awesome like that was a nice sort of relief from like uh everything is horrible but like but then you know the the fallout of that is that you know every you know there's still fallout from that so it's just like uh like no matter what we do like there is a a shitty reaction to it. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. Like the world's kind of a bummer sometimes. So I, that's why I think my books tend to dwell in sort of the bummer zone is like, I'm trying to puzzle out. Like, how do I look beyond this? Like, how do I see a good side in things? And it's like, well, if I write about it, like maybe that'll help. It's certainly just like sitting around thinking about it is not useful to me. Like I just fall into this weird, uh, recursive loop, and I just get bummed out. So, well, as long as you get an yeah. outlet for it, that's why uh, I do drink heavily. So, <laughs> we've all got our ways of coping. I just try to tell myself, you know, look, when I was a teenager, the idea of gay marriage and anything remotely resembling any kind of universal health care, and that we'd have a black president—all of these things were incomprehensible. That was only a quarter century ago. You know, it's uh, yeah, the yeah. world is always two steps forward, one step back, and sometimes it's two or three steps back, but things get better. And, yeah, and you don't yeah. just, just drink. I mean, you do craft masterful dick jokes. That's right. Drinking and dick jokes. <laughs> that's how I get through the day. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> Except I don't. <laughs> but weed is now legal in Portland, so that's what I do now. No, we've, we've, got, now me we've got medicinal, but I'm too fucking old to learn a, two, a new drug, man. I'm good with booze. I got that down. I'm going to stick with yeah, it. Yeah. Every time I ever Go smoked, ahead. it was after I had like 10 beers, and then I'm bolted to the chair going, what's outside? What the fuck is outside? Well, that's, uh, don't, you don't mix them. <laughs> yeah, no, I've kind of just like fully switched over because, uh, I don't know, it's cheaper for one, like, because uh, I've gone out to bars and it's like, huh, where did that $90 that I had in my <laughs> bank account? Uh, it's like, oh, right, because I got drunk. Uh but like for that ninety dollars, like I can get mildly shit faced, you know, over a, a week or two. So it's like my old uh, <clears throat> an old comedy buddy of mine had a bit. It was every time you go out to a bar, when you wake up, 
you grab your pants from last night and it's like the booze bag lottery. You look in your pockets looking for anything bigger than a one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, now it's all completely legal here. Like they don't sell it here yet, but I can just drive up to Vancouver, Washington and buy some. It's super weird. Like that's a weird part of the future that I never expected. Like, like, oh, I get to go to a store and like some dude, you know, a clerk will uh, advise me on like what mind altering substance I should buy today. Um, <laughs> yes. And <laughs> you, you can have some faith that it hasn't been sprayed with rat poison or some weird shit. See, the future is yeah. inherently a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's a lot I like. It. Like, I like, I like legal weed and I like that deep dream thing. Um, those are kind of, uh, and that new story about the guy with 1200 guns and yeah. four tons. Of oh my God. Like, what was, and his wife, like, was convinced in his lies that, like, he, he was half alien and worked for some CIA operative kind of black ops agency. Yeah. I don't know though. Like, you know, there's, there's definitely something weird going on there. Like he had, he has like 14 cars in his name, but they haven't found all of them because he kept them. He didn't keep them all at home. So like they're like stashed around the city. Um, and one of those cars drives underwater. That's so awesome. Um, <laughs> this guy fucking Batman. <laughs> yeah. It's so bizarre. And then he dies in a grocery store parking lot. And then he, but he tells his fiance like, Oh, just leave me here. Like, my agency will come pick me up. So she does. She leaves him his dead body in the car, and then she goes with her friend to Oregon, like, for a week. Like, just like, no, well, we're going to go to Oregon, I guess, like, and wait for the CIA to come pick up my fiancé's dead body. Um, <laughs> he was just, a strange agent. You called it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish I could take credit for that term, but I stole it from a friend of mine. So. Sorry, there's no there's no stealing, only only borrowing or whatever. I forget yes. the quote. Well, I, I thanked him in the foreword of the book, so I at least, like, I try to signify when I steal really good shit. <laughs> I, I'd like to thank you for the phrase sentient fedora in Welcome Back. That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was glorious. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I've been sitting on that one for a bit. All so right. I'm glad I got the busted out. And yeah, one thing I, w- I want to mention, Jonathan Sawyer's art on this, it's it's really spectacular considering the range of stuff that that he's got to do. This poor guy, he's yeah. got to go from emotional slice of life millennial twenty something melodrama to this really tightly choreographed, like heavy duty, visceral action. How did you hook up with this guy? Because this is yet another. You keep finding artists I've never heard of before. Yeah, no, it's, uh, like that, both Jonathan and Chris Visions on Dead Letters, like that's all down to my editors, Eric and Chris at Boom. They, like, they hooked me up with Chris and I was like, what the fuck? Like, I was like, yeah, of course I want this dude to draw my book. Like, uh, and Jonathan I had been aware of because he was drawing this book for Black Mask that Matt Minor writes, uh, called Critical Hit. So I had been following that and I was like, holy shit, this dude's really good. And then, and then yeah, Eric and Chris were like, Hey, so we have this guy in mind for welcome back. And I was like, yes, like, yeah, I don't know how, what sort of weird mojo they have over at boom, but somehow they, they get these amazing artists. Um, and Jonathan is cool as shit. Like he's with both Jonathan and Chris, like there's always a worry that like you're going to work with somebody and they're going to be like a dick. Um, <laughs> Cause you know, there's a lot of dicks out there. So like, I'm always just like, Oh, like, I hope we get along. And yeah, with like both Jonathan and Chris, like we immediately got along. Uh, and you know, like 
started talking independent of boom. Like I like to do that right away is like start talking to my artists, like as an actual person and not have like a go between. So, um, so yeah, Jonathan, and I just like started chatting on Facebook messenger and I would run everything by him. I'd be like, Hey, like I'm thinking about doing this. And he's like, it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then like, but he'll like, like I definitely write some scripts that are like, I don't know. I'm sure at some point Jonathan opens them and is like, ah shit. But like he goes above and beyond it. Like there's a, if you look in, uh, in Molly's like living room, she has like, there's all these like paintings on the wall and stuff. And like, and one of them is like an Aztec print and another is like, there's like all these things that relate to her past lives. None of which I had in the script. He was just like, no, I think that makes sense. And I was like, oh, I, like, why did I not think of that? Like, so, so yeah, he, and this book like would not be, I don't know, like what it is without him. Like, uh, you know, of course, like on a visual level, uh, but also like just on a story level, like talking stuff out with him really helped me sort of, cause like I said, like this book used to be like a lot darker and bleaker. And it was mostly just about Molly and we were going to sort of leave the the target that was hunting her kind of in the, I don't know, more mysterious, but, but yeah, it was like talking with Jonathan really helped me figure out. It's like, Oh, it's not just about Molly. It's also about, you know, the target that she's hunting. And, and then, yeah, like then it became like sort of a weird, almost kind of romance book. So yeah, like, I don't know, like, uh, there's a weird alchemy that happens with an artist, especially one that you like, you really get along with where suddenly it's like everything starts to change. And I could not tell you like where at any point, like, Oh, it turned into this instead of that. But it's just like you start talking and you figure out the things that you relate on and the things that you don't. And I don't know. It's an alchemy where you kind of smash them all together and see what happens. But yeah, like Jonathan and I were like, you know, I think, I think the first thing we really related on was we both love uh, this band, uh, The Electric Six, the ones who did Gay Bar, like, back in the day. Okay, yep. <laughs> I know the song, but I didn't know the band. Oh, they're still around. They're still, they release an album, like, every year. And I'm a huge fan of them. And then I found out that Jonathan was, too. So, like, so like Molly's dog is named Showtime, and that The Electric Six has a song called It's Showtime. So, just, like, stuff like that. Like, and we're, like, I don't know. When I was at Heroes, actually, uh, Jonathan was coming down and, uh, I told him he and his buddies could crash in my room. I had never met him up to that point. So it was like Friday or no, Thursday night at Heroes, like 3 a.m. And I'm just like sitting in my bed and then like, hey, there's Jonathan. Like I meet him for the first time. And thankfully we got along really well because otherwise it would have been like two awkward dudes sharing a room. <laughs> But yeah, he's great. And like, I, I can't believe he hasn't been, I don't know why Jonathan isn't huger than he is. Cause he's like the same with Chris. Like, I feel like both, like I'm lucky to get to work with these dudes before they blow the fuck up. Cause they're both going to blow the fuck up and leave me in their dust. So oh. it's definitely a, a striking looking book. I've got one more plot question, then sort of an inside, another inside baseball question. Um, all right. So we got grunts. Okay. We got soldiers and we got atlases. And is that all the levels or is there any chance we're going to see something else? Oh, no. There's also, uh, canvassers. So canvassers are basically like they're the, uh, they're kind of the street team. 
like they're the ones who who go out and kind of keep tabs on or locate sequels who haven't woken up yet. So like the church people who knock on your door at like 8 a.m. on a on a Sunday morning to hand you a pamphlet, like those are canvassers or like the dude who's begging for money on the subway uh, or, you know, the guy at the DMV who's, who's like holding up his line. Like they're just everywhere and all they do <laughs> is kind of keep tabs on, oh, okay, that's a sequel. He hasn't woken up. I'll mark him down, like put him in the directory. But yeah, th- that's basically the, there's no like secret uh, rank that we're going to unveil. Like we kind of try to put it all out right in the first issue so everybody knows what we're dealing with. All I know is I've got a whole routine down for hiding from Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons when they come by, and I'm going to have to go to the door just in case I can be an immortal badass. Thanks, Christopher. Thanks a (laughs) fucking lot. I like to open up people's worlds. All right, so yeah, this is more of a... It it was just an observation that I made across a bunch of your your books, and I'm just kind of curious about this. Okay. In a lot of your books, you, you tend to, with your protagonist, you use narration boxes to give readers access to their internal thought process, their internal dialogue, which really yeah. in comics for about the last 10 or 15 years outside of like Spider-Man, it's, it's not a thing that you see. And I'm curious as to whether that's something conscious on your part to make more of a, a novel, an enhanced novel feel to comics, as opposed to, you know, really since you know, Ellis and Hitch and the authority, the big, Oh, constant widescreen show. Don't tell style of comics i'm just wondering if that's something on purpose uh and and what your reasoning is behind it or for all i know it's like oh shit i didn't notice that but i'm just curious about it i'm horribly aware of it like i know it's a thing that that i feel like i i tend to lean on a little too much i just love it so much though like and i i grew up writing prose stuff like i've written you know uh two novels that nobody will ever see like so i'm very much like those are my origins. So, and I just, I don't know, like I find that the, my main thrust in like writing is like, I want to write good characters. Like all the action shit is all kind of secondary to like, I want to try and create people who are, you know, somewhat real and alive and like kind of relatable. Uh, even if it's relatable on a level of like, Oh yeah, I know a fucking asshole like that. Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, I feel like narration is, or, or, you know, caption boxes, like, I don't know, like, I, I certainly feel like I, I, I constantly have like a, a weird internal monologue running a lot of the time. So I just feel like, yeah, it's a nice way to sort of get into a character's head without having to have like, I mean, cause they're thinking about shit that like, is like a thing that like, and the same with like high crimes. Um, it's like, this is not shit you talk to people about unless you're in a therapist's office. Like, so, you know, a lot of people's like deepest fears or like hesitations, like they're not going to come out and like talk to somebody about that. Like that's shit that you keep locked in your vault. But I think it's stuff that's, you know, really, it gives you a, a, a better insight on who these people are and like, and, you know, possibly on yourself of like, oh, yeah, I felt like that. Like, I try, I've been trying to pull back on it a little bit. I mean, I've, I've done at least a couple projects where I don't use any caption boxes, which is a lot harder for me. 
Um, well, I did notice they, you don't see that in Escape from New York, but then again, Snake Plissken's internal dialogue, half of it'll be, fuck you, and fuck you. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I said that right from the beginning of Escape from New York, because my editor asked me, he's like, he's like, hey, so you have this note about how like Snake has decided this thing, and he's like, are you going to have caption boxes? And I was like, no, like, it's, like Snake is the one dude who, like, if he thinks a thing, he will say a thing, like. Like he's not a dude who's who's given to self examination. Like he is a dude given to like, here's the thing I have to do. I'm gonna go do that thing. So yeah, and even with like Snake's dialogue, like whenever I get a lettering, when I get like the first draft of the the full lettered issue, I'll go through and like strike out like every third line of Snake dialogue because it's like no, like because when I'm writing in a script, it seems like okay, like but when I'm seeing it, it's like Snake would not say all this shit which is why like the whole speech he has with Bulgarov like that's why I put the line in of like this is the most I've said to anybody in years because it's like Snake isn't he's not a dude who's going to tell you how he feels about things like he's a dude who's going to pick up a gun and take care of these things so there's a like that's been kind of nice is like but also like a lot of the work was already done for me on Escape from New York with the movie so it feels like if you've seen the movie, then you know who Snake is going into the comic. And uh, that takes a lot of work out of my hands. With something like Welcome Back or High Crimes or Dead Letters, like, there's a lot more. Like, I have to, I don't know, do a lot more heavy lifting to sort of, I don't know, show who this person is in as quick a route as possible. I like, right. the, I like the narration boxes because I am a notorious, I talk to myself whenever i'm alone i externalize my internal dialogue so it really speaks to me i really like that you as... talk to yourself when i'm here it's not just when you're alone <laughs> <laughs> i'm so used to seeing you it's just sort of it's like being alone when you're here amanda i don't mean that in a bad way i swear to christ <laughs> i'm asleep in the car <laughs> but yeah it's a I I really like that use because it speaks to me as as somebody who yeah externalizes my internal dialogue, you know, because to me unless unless I'm saying it, it doesn't quite seem real. So to see it externalized in characters and comics, I really like it, and that's why it stuck out to me. And I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know every new book I start, like I'm always that's always like one of the earliest questions is like, am I going to use captions in this? Uh, and if I'm not, then like how the fuck am I going to get around that? Because because I don't want to have a, I never want to have dialogue where it's like, oh, okay, well, uh, I don't know, like, like I, I'm totally okay doing exposition when necessary, and sometimes it's really necessary, but I don't know, like I like things to feel natural, and so like this sort of like running stream of thoughts that that sometimes works perfectly in sync with what's happening or is completely counter to what's happening, like that feels. That feels real and true to me. Um, so, so yeah, I get very hung up on like, no, like this, I'm trying to write, even though I'm writing like the most ridiculous scenarios in the world, like I still want the people in the middle of them to feel like actual people and not, you know, just some, some, you know, uh, cookie cutter action hero or something. Well, I, I got to hand it to you. You're the only writer I can think of who could take what really is sort of a basic wish fulfillment concept. Like I was born a warrior and I didn't know it and just turn it brutally cynical with, and I am doomed to fight and die over and over again for no reason. I will ever fucking understand. 
I mean, it, it makes the Matrix look like a Duracell battery ad. It's <laughs> I, I like the level of cynicism in it, man. Thank you. <laughs> so the first issue will be in stores on August 19th. Is that correct? Okay, Correct. but the the deadline to do a pre order on it is is that uh, Monday the twenty seventh or Tuesday the twenty eighth? Uh, Monday the twenty seventh, and that's what they call in comics they call it final order cutoff. So that's where the retailers like put in their their final orders for for books. Um, you can still order it after that because ideally retailers are ordering what they think is enough to you know, like sell out from the shelves. Um, so you can put it on, you know, I think the best way to do it is like, if you have a pull list to add the book to your pull list and like, regardless of my writing, like Jonathan's art is so good that like, it feels like it's not, I'm not asking people to risk a lot by, by buying our first four issues. Cause like it's beautiful as hell. So, um, even if you don't really, if it's not your favorite story in the world, like the art, is like enough to pour over uh, that it'll be more than worth your money. So oh, I don't that's know. my lame there, ass. There's a, a sequel. I don't want to give anything away. A sequel that we meet at the very end of the first issue that I cannot wait for that character to go into that backpack and pull out two guns and take on a crowd. That will be glorious to see. <laughs> yeah, no, there's uh, an issue too. Like, uh, was definitely one of my favorite scenes to write for this book. And, uh, and like Jonathan is like, I thought I wrote was a fairly like, uh, I'm sorry, dude, like, but here's what I'm giving you. And then Jonathan's like, oh no, I'm going to make this more complicated. Like, like he's like stepped it up by about five or six levels. So it's like, that's, I don't know. Like that's the perfect collaboration. Like same with high crimes is like the first thing, one of the first things Ibrahim told me was like, well, yeah, I like to do really dense pages. Like, you know, seven, eight panels. And I was like, ah, oh, like, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so yeah, like it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. Like I, I feel like this, this is another high crimes. I initially tried to write, well, not initially, but like once it got shot down by publishers, I tried to write it as a novel and then luckily got it accepted by monkey brain. But, uh, welcome back was kind of the same thing. Like where I wrote, I mean, I wrote like, I don't know, a good, like uh, I wrote a lot of this like novel that eventually I was just like, uh, this is not working. So I feel like, yeah, like I'm as deeply invested in this as I was in, or still am in high crimes. Well, it's the first issue is excellent. And yeah, it's, it does make a difference to do a pre-order because yeah, another example I've got is a Copra. I'd read about it online and my local store never carried it. And when the second trade was coming out, I asked him to, pre-order that for me and since all it took was oh somebody's interested in this he got an extra two or three copies just in case yeah so it's if you got any interest in the book at all yeah all you got to do is email your local comic store and tell them you want it i mean it it helps because some owners are lazy i did take down the uh the preview code it's jun one five one zero seven zero so if you got a lazy comic store owner that might help them out but yeah, it's, it might lead them to add an extra couple copies so other people can take a look at it. So it's definitely important to pre-order if you can. And it's wicked easy to do. Yeah. I'm a barely functioning alcoholic, and I can pre-order most of my books <laughs> when I remember to do it. So definitely worthwhile because, yeah, this is one hell of a first issue. You're very functional. <laughs> you 
need to I'm just all that. I'm just looking at the clock going, shit, it's almost beer o'clock. We better wrap this up. Jesus. <laughs> so, Amanda, was there anything you wanted to ask Christopher before we uh, wrap it up? Well, because we, we did talk about this a little bit. Is is first-person narration your favorite sort of storytelling technique? Or is it, has it just come out that way? In, in several of, of the books that we've, we've read from you so far? Uh, I think, like, I do like third-person narration. I think it's hard to do in comics, though, like, because, because then, like, you're dealing with some sort of omniscient narrator, and I don't know. Like, I like, I like all my stuff to have lines, like, cause and effect. Like, I like my stuff to make a logical sense. So, like, having, like, omniscient narration it's just like my first question is always all right who the fuck is saying this like uh and why um and like that was one of the things for the i wrote uh, a four issue avp miniseries and one of the when we were in the writer's room i think one of the editors suggested like whoa you could do it like like you know traditional third person narration and i was like yeah i could like but i don't I don't know how to do that. Like, I mean, like it makes sense in prose because, you know, you're just describing things that happen. But in, in comics, like, I don't know. It feels like you, you need to have a face to that voice. Like, I can't just have like, Oh, I am, you know, master narrator and I have come down to narrate this story, uh, before I move on to narrate another story. Like, um, first person is just more visceral. It's more relatable. The only problem I have with first person narration is like, and actually it's not really a problem, but like, I, I like to write flowery sometimes. Like I like to really like sort of flex my metaphors and my, uh, my ridiculous language sometimes. So, uh, it's harder to do that with a first person narration without it really like sticking out to somebody reading it. Like, like, come on, nobody, nobody thinks like this. Like nobody like says this. Nobody's reciting like these tone poems to themselves. Like, yeah, but see, um, that's why I'm going to miss dead letters because, as a Chandlerish story, that's a perfect place to put that kind of stuff. That it made a lot more sense, yeah. But yeah, it's just like I don't know. Like first person is just the easiest way to sort of, and actually, like you know, hopefully we get all the issues to do it where I can, because like all of Molly's narration in in welcome back is it's kind of a like building up to a reveal of what that narration is. It's not actually like, you know, like a running narration. Like there is a, there is something behind it all. There is a motivation behind it all that we will uh, ideally reveal if we get enough issues. And if we don't, then it'll just be an eternal mystery. So, no, <laughs> so pre-order the fucking book because I want to know. God damn it! I know, right? <laughs> All right, Christopher. Anything uh, you want to? Uh, one last chance to do a, a pitch for Welcome Back. Uh, otherwise, we can wrap it up. It's. Uh, I'm realizing we talked for almost an hour and a half. It's yeah, been thanks. a really interesting conversation. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time. But yeah, if you got one, yeah. anything, uh, one last pitch. Here's your chance. Uh, um. Yeah, I like if you like if you like beautiful comics that have a lot of punching and kicking and and blood. If you like characters who aren't, you know, one hundred percent perfect people, 
Like I, I feel like that's that's part of my self branding is like I like to write damage people, um, aka real people, because um, <laughs> I don't believe in the myth of like. Somebody asked me like about Welcome Back. They were like, "Well, who's the good guy supposed to be in this?" And I was like, "Well, they're both good guys." Like. Like in their heads, nobody's a bad guy in their own head. Like unless, you know, they're like a really horrible person uh, who relishes in it. Like everybody, it's that line about you know uh, the villain is always the hero in their own story. Um, and I feel like that's a really big sort of guiding principle for Welcome Back is that like everybody thinks what they're doing is the good thing. Like they are on the side of right, and maybe they are, and maybe they aren't. But like you know, everybody kind of operates of like no, I'm a good person. Like I'm doing good things. Like even if you're doing supremely fucked up things, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump thinks he's a good person. Like, uh, nobody else does, but like, (laughs) you're ascribing um, a lot of thought to Donald, but okay. (laughs) You know, you know that like that dude, like congratulates himself in the mirror every night. Like, like, no, I'm, I'm helping this country. Like I'm going to fix things. Like, and from the outside, everybody's like, this guy's a horrible fucking racist monster. Like, but, you know, uh, to him, it's like, no, I'm doing good things. I'm trying to, you know, even if he's just solely uh, self-interested. It's a classic um, example of somebody calling themselves a straight talker when they really should mean asshole. But Yeah. yeah. Um, so I feel like that's a lot of what Welcome Back is about, is sort of figuring out, like, like, is there a difference between good and evil? And, like, the whole idea of, like, war, of, like, who, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Like, um... So, like, we get into some heady philosophical stuff, but also, like, we have a lot of uh, just sort of balls-out action and really uh, bizarre visuals. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with two characters who have lived a hundred lives before, stretching all the way back to caveman days. So, like, there's a lot. It's a, it's, it's a very rich universe uh, where anybody you walk past on the street could be you know, a badass killer, uh, and you, you'd never know it because they just look like, you know, oh, well, that's a, you know, that woman's seven months pregnant. Like, there's no way she's out murdering people every night. But yeah, so I don't know if you like spy stuff. I mean, like, it was very much written. I didn't, it wasn't a lot of it. Like, I, I, uh, I started watching that show, The Americans. Oh, yeah. Um, like, so that was kind of a, the influence isn't really, you can't see it on the page, but very much that sort of like spy versus spy stuff and like people living in disguise and like what happens when your cover breaks. And, um, yeah, I'm really tell- terrible at elevator pitches. I guess if you <laughs> like cool ass comic books, like you should read Welcome Back. Well, the, the first issue grabbed the hell out of us. So yes. yeah, this is definitely worth checking out. Ton of action, beautiful art. Yeah. This one is a keeper. So yes. It'll be in stores August 19th. Email your fucking comic store and tell them you want it because it does make a difference. So It does. All right. So thank you again for your time, Christopher. I really didn't anticipate this would go long, but it's really been an interesting conversation. So I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us this long. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you want to have me back, I'm, uh, I'm always up to talk. Awesome. <laughs> uh, how about on Wednesday? I'm lonely on Wednesdays. <laughs> I think I got time (laughs) alright man thanks again (laughs) that was a long conversation really it was more goddamn 
I don't want to say fun. It was just interesting. It, it was, was fun. I had fun. Uh, there were definitely, uh, yeah, there were definitely some laughs there. But uh, yeah, I mean, just hearing about where he gets some of his motivations for mm. writing characters. It's, yeah. Uh, I'm really, I really appreciate Christopher taking the time to to talk to us at that length. Yeah. No, that was, that was tremendous. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. All right, you want to talk about a couple of this week's comic books? Sure. All right, uh, which one do you want to start with? Oh, let's start with. I think I think starting with the last days of the Punisher is about the right um, <laughs> tonal thing to shift it to. <laughs> okay. All right, then we'll move toward the lighter side afterwards. Yes. But, all right, the Punisher number twenty, uh, the last of the pre, well, not really pre Secret Wars, but. Before the before everything fucking blows up at the end of it, it's, the the wrap up of the six one six. Yes, uh, the the end of the original Punisher, uh, number twenty, written by Nathan Edmondson, art by Mitch uh, Gerads. Uh, yeah, I mean this is this comes down to it's the Punisher spending his last days doing what he loves, so killing dudes exactly. Meeting so, out punishment. So, Amanda, what was your... Give me some of your thoughts on the book. I, I'm a sucker for a good Punisher story, and this is one. Um, what I like about this is, you know, the willingness to um, let him take out real-world baddies as his final act. You know, they, they kind of quickly and almost off-screen in a few issues back had him take care of the major bad guys in Manhattan <laughs> at, right. Wil at Wilson Fisk's party. And, it, and then it was just like, now let's, let's get back to, to real world guys. And the idea of you know, given his, his former military background, letting him go into the middle East and take out some sort of Osama bin Laden type, <laughs> Yeah, see, I I don't agree. It's, really, I I would have been much. I wanted to. If it's going to be the last days of the Punisher, I want him to go after street level criminals. Unless we've retconned Punisher's origin to be that it's not Vietnam where he was forged, but the Gulf War or Afghanistan or Iraq. Which, I don't think that that's happened. Uh, neither do I. I mean, you've followed Punisher more than I have recently. Yeah, but, I, I don't. I. I still think it's vietnam <laughs> yeah so the, af, it, it would if he was going up against the Viet Cong or the north vietnamese army or ref, or remnants of them 40 years later it would make sense to me that that would be how he spends his final days otherwise he should have been going after street level crime on new york the punisher wants to punish the people who destroyed his life and his family and that really comes down to organized crime or yeah the communist vietnamese army but I, for this though they make a point of he's going after this black dawn terrorist group and they're taking american hostages and one of the victims was a friend of his so as his origins came from something personal and, and yeah they could have done a similar story with something happening in new york where it was personal they're, they're having him go out on a, a vengeance spree because it's personal yeah, and I suppose I can see your point by having him return to more of his military roots. Could you can see that as sort of a he's coming full circle kind of thing? Yeah, but that's it, how I took it. And and I suppose that's valid. Just for me, it was the Punisher should go down fighting criminals. 
that's his mission. That's who he wants to punish. And don't get me wrong. This is a fun story, and I'm okay with it as a final Punisher story in the sense that there's final and there's final. We'll see yeah. the Punisher again after we resolve Secret Wars and we've got a new Marvel Universe as created by the Silver Surfer or however they're going to do it. Yeah. The Punisher will come back. This is not really the final Punisher story, but yeah, it just, you know, I, I do like that he went out. What worked for me about it was the way that Punisher went about it because it did show, even though I, I think it was a bit misdirected, how deeply committed he is to fulfilling his mission. Yeah. Because this is a case where, and it really kind of threw me to start with, he really doesn't have anything to lose. Yeah. The world's ending in 45 <laughs> minutes. I mean, 20, 20 pages of story. So yeah, it's with that, it's, okay, in order to get these people, I will walk into gunfire. I will jump out of third-story windows. I, I'll let myself almost be killed, it's it's methodical as he sweeps from room to room and not worry about what damage he's sustaining. Right, because my initial instinct, particularly as he was walking toward the leader and just taking rounds, it was like, this doesn't ring true. He's too smart to do that, but no, the, the world's ending. Yeah. So all other considerations, including his own survival, are secondary. As long as he lives long enough to pull the trigger the last time that he has to, which is literally just about the case in this book. So that rang true for me where it's, okay, this is my last chance and this is how I'm going to go out and I'm not going to go out, however, until I'm done. Right. That worked for me. Uh, I would, I, you know, I, he certainly had no idea that battle world was coming after this. I, I like the idea that he decided, you know what, this guy's bad enough. I have to take him out even though the world is ending. Because that means that this dingbat isn't going to show up somewhere on Battle World. <laughs> <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me. It wouldn't have occurred to the Punisher either, but yeah. I like the cut of your jib. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. No new life for you. <laughs> That's right. You die here. Then your body goes somewhere. Although, well, I mean, Punisher isn't necessarily dead, but he's damn near close to it by, by the final panel. <laughs> I'm not sure. I kind of took it to be... Yeah, he he died as it got to him. Yeah, you could be right because they they trail off with drowning is and then an ellipsis. Yeah, I think you could take it either way, but I I took it as he died just before. And we know that there are other Frank castles on Battleworld because we've met them in Thor's. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. So there's gonna be. A punish again as a fight if this was really supposed to be the final story i really would have had a huge problem yeah. with it. no he goes out against criminals you know even even garth ennis's the end which i haven't read in years but I mean, that was it, it would needed to have been larger in scope than than this if it was going to be the final story because i do remember from garth ennis's was Punisher basically irradiated the world. It was <laughs> only way you can rid the world of crime is to rid the world. And okay, for particularly Ennis's Max version of the Punisher, mm. that really would be the only way Frank Castle would lay his guns down. It's there's nobody left to do crimes except me, and I think I'm going to walk into the sort of the, the Ultron solution. <laughs> Kinda, you know, <laughs> just because he wears. Wears a shirt with a superhero logo doesn't mean you should really 
consider Frank Castle a superhero. No, no. He's an anti-hero. <laughs> yeah. At best. So, I don't know. It wasn't bad. There was some stuff. One thing I really liked, uh, there were some really great-looking panels by Gerard's on here. Yes. And I'm thinking particularly the few panels where Punisher was taken on the guy near the swimming pool. Oh, that was pretty cool, yeah. And, yeah, that, that one panel where the camera is in the pool looking through the waves at Punisher and his white phosphorus flaming logo, That was it was just a really cool visual, a really good effect. I enjoyed that. And, and, and there was humor in here where, where you might not have expected to find it. The guy that he uh, kills in the bathroom and then drowns in the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Prior to which he said, I hope I didn't scare the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. The next panel's his face in the toilet. Yeah. yeah that was nice. Yeah. Hey, if you're going to go out fighting criminals, you might as well get a LARF. <laughs> Why not? He's not doing it for the lulls. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, overall, it was not a bad issue. Yeah. There were certain things I would have preferred to have seen done differently, but just based on what was on the page... Provided you keep the understanding of it's not really the last days of the Punisher. No, we'll see him again. Yeah, it's a, it was it was a fun enough story, and I'm ready to move on to Jesus. What are we on Punisher chapter or volume ten, eleven like that, at this yeah. point? So we'll see what happens there, but not bad. Yeah. All right. Now on a, on the on a lighter note. On a lighter note, yes, and a book that is doing the kind of stuff I want to see out of these Secret Wars books. Star-Lord and Kitty Pride number one, uh, written by Sam Humphrey and Alti... Fermancia. What kind of parents would name their kid that? Yes. Mr. and Mrs. Fermancia. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, Uh, in Secret Wars, unlike most of the residents of Battleworld, Peter Quill arrived on Mr. Fantastic's lifeboat. Uh, he remembers everything about the Marvel Universe from before the incursions, and he has to hide from Doctor Doom. So he's hiding out in Manhattan as a fucking lounge singer in the quiet room. Yeah, yeah. With his buddy Drax, the drummer. <laughs> no, no, no. Drax is Drax is sort of the proprietor of the place. Oh, is the, he? The drummer is uh, Guido Strongman. Oh, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, shit. All right. And uh, Polaris appears to be playing um, a big old Gibson. <laughs> All right. I missed that visual cue completely. I thought it was Drax. No, no. Drax um, Drax is differentiated by being green and having that weird red shit on his eyes. In my defense, uh, Strong Guy is wearing a chapeau while he's playing drums. That's part of why I probably thought it was... He is wearing a chapeau, but he's got those like goofy glasses that he always wears. Well, I have had a very long weekend. I'm lucky I can makes sense no, the, out the, of this the, funny book. The goofy thing with, with Drax is they've given him this just bizarre Bruno Mars pompadour. <laughs> oh, yes. He is a styling man who loves his hair. Yes. <laughs> but, and he's articulate and shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Drax owns the place. Uh, we've got Gambit in a booth you know, acting as you know, some kind of illegal collector trying to make deals. And uh, then suddenly, of all the gin joints and all the battle worlds, <laughs> she had to walk in. Yeah, look, this book is not going to make you any fucking smarter. But no. it, it really is doing what I really have enjoyed seeing out of some of the Secret Wars books. You know, I'm particularly thinking of Thor's by Jason Aaron that took the concept of Thor and turned it into a a buddy cop story. It's, yeah, it's 
taking the built-in mulligan that the end of Secret Wars is going to give all of these books and using it to do something really different and fun with itself. Yeah. I mean, this is basically, it's it's Casablanca, or it's a film noir with superheroes. Right. You know, we got Kitty is what looks like the femme fatale. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's got the elements, you know, the, like I said, the gin joints. And so yeah, they're just, they're doing something fun with it, which I think is, is cool. And also, Kitty, um, apropos of nothing, seems to have Wolverine claws. Uh, yeah, I couldn't tell if that was some kind of gauntlet or something she was wearing, but... She's got, like, the X-23 claws. <laughs> hey, she's look- She's working for Valeria and the Future Foundation. You would obtain... Because I'm looking at that panel from across the room. She's got the... Is she wearing a bracelet there? Yeah, she is wearing bracelets, so I suppose it could be... Something retractable. Yeah, I mean that's my best guess on that. Yeah, I it's hard to tell. <laughs> I mean, why she would use that as opposed to phasing? But it, you know, again, there's various versions of these heroes, right? Yeah, and frankly, with Doctor Doom and his stance toward mutants post Secret Wars, she may not be aware that she has any mutant powers. True, true. So. One thing I really liked in this book was the idea that Quill's making his living sing- singing Disney songs. Yeah, because apparently this is a battle world where they've never heard of Disney. Yeah, Disney never happened on Battle World, so he looks like a genius <laughs> <laughs> cabaret composer. Because, I mean, who hasn't had that fantasy? Yeah. Man, if I could just go back in time and do this thing that I know is going to make a million dollars. Oh, it's it's the Back to the Future moment where he plays Chuck Berry before Chuck Berry does. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's Back to the Future made a billion dollars doing shit like this, so it's it's a, a smart little conceit in the book, right? Um, I love their characterization of Gambit as the collector. Some the panels where he's just squeeing over the the stuff that he's going to be able to take as his reward for bringing this um, unidentified material that the the foundation is going to study to to kitty are just adorable <laughs> yeah it, it proved to me once and for all that gambit is just a complete piece of shit there were reasons yeah. that during the middle half of the 90s i only read vertigo comics and i think <laughs> i think gambit's about four of those fucking reasons i've never particularly liked gambit you know and here he's just a weaselly fucking piece of shit the way i always imagined that he was yeah I mean, he's playing that, you know, that role, you know, particularly with the, with the French style accent. I am, I am shocked that, you know, you, you need a guy like that in a Casablanca type story. Yeah, he's the, yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean I like him. One thing I did have a problem with, those uh, throwing knives that Kitty gave to him that were supposedly carved from... The bones of Longshot. Yeah, the problem is Longshot has hollow bones like a bird that's right so you don't have a lot of material there even in the femur to, to carve a throwing knife i don't out know of. doom's a master scientist perhaps they figured out something oh no doom's god oh well yes he can so. <laughs> he can do anything except apparently identify certain genetic materials <laughs> in, in, instead of a little thing of of hair for for Gambit to bring Kitty to test. Should have like a urine sample. Should have brought like a, a filthy Kleenex. What's in here? Just test it. <laughs> Wada chewing gum. <laughs> That's not the wad I was thinking of. But... <laughs> You're 12. Pretty much. And a punch drunk and brain dead. But 
but it's I like the idea of these books that decide, you know, all right, we've got these characters and no matter what we do here, it's not going to matter in a couple months. So let's do something different and just fun. And this is one of them. Yeah, like it's it's, it's not going to make you smarter, but it's a good time and it's something different with these characters. So yeah. I had a good time with it. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a it's a fun book and sometimes you just need to have a a moment of levity. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. We got anything else or uh No, I think that'll that'll cover it. All right. So, yes, why don't we wrap things up one last time? Want to give a big thank you to Christopher Sabella for taking the time to to talk with us on this episode. We yes. really appreciate it. We, thank you, dude. Learned a lot, and it was really great talking to you. All right, so back to business. Uh, don't know where you found this particular episode, but you can always find us at our home website, crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash crisisoninfinitemidlives. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at infinitemidlife. Uh, we are on Tumblr, crisisoninfinitemidlives.tumblr.com. Gmail. Uh, you can email us, crisisoninfinitemidlives <laughs> at gmail.com. I always do forget that one, actually. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do find the show there, do us a favor. If you like the show, shoot us a review, give us a rating. Helps new people find the show, and it's always fun to hear from listeners. Did you mention our Facebook? I did. Oh. Uh, now that I, have it has an actu- I have brain damage. Now that it has an actual URL, I do that first, okay. so I can lock that into my memory. So brain damaged. <laughs> it has been a long weekend, man. <laughs> Uh, where else can you find us? You can find us on TuneIn Radio. We are proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. And I think that is it. That is it. This has been episode 80 of the Crisis on Infinite Midlife show. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. Thank you for listening and derp. I literally don't have the energy to do anything even remotely clever. That's okay. I'm just going to go find a way to s- get the Little Mermaid song out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> And booze.